Hey, everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters, hitting you harder than your first overdraft fee. My name is Thomas, <laughs> and I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking this fine Saturday morning? Good, dude. I feel like we have to put, like, uh, an animated gif of your face when you, like, start the episode. <laughs> yeah, the way you, like, quench your eyes together, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> dude, I'm even, like, more animated when I do my podcast intros, because there's nobody in the room, and I'm not talking to anybody, so it's just, like, I'm Shaking all over your the place, hands bouncing the off the walls. Hallelujah! <laughs> it's a revival! Yes. <laughs> just water today, dude. Um, Me too. It was It was a long night last night. Premium ice water ah, in ice a in fancy it. glass. Mine's just in my. So this this glass says "Cheers" on it. I don't know if you can see. Oh yeah. Uh, I thought it said Steelers. I thought it was <laughs> like a Pittsburgh Steelers glass for like months, and then I looked at it closely one day, and I was like, it doesn't say Steelers. On it. <laughs> 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 well, this so, under yeah. false pretenses. I can't read. <laughs> I got mine in my uh, my. What do you do? You have like a water bottle thing, right? Uh, I had one and I lost it at the rink, so now I'm just rocking one of the Fiji bottles again. Mm. I, don't I have know this Camelback Eddie I've had for months, and I want to work. It's fantastic. I think it's for like active people with active lifestyles. But mine just sits on my desk. Um, Andrew, mm. I specifically remember you saying you're going to get active back in January. How's I that did. going? Uh, so what are we talking about this episode? <laughs> so we are talking about. Okay, so I wanted to do an episode on the national debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started researching, and then I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do an episode on the national debt be, uh, before we do an episode on money creation. Mm. Because I was like, well, how the heck is money created and pumped into the system? So I've been doing all this research, and the two are so perfectly intertwined. The national debt and, yes. Debt I- and money creation. When you look at these graphs, you're like, these are the same trend lines. <laughs> Why? Uh, so this shit blew my mind. Um, it's, I mean, it's kind of simple when you, when you know about it, but I don't think people understand how our system of fractional reserve banking works and how the hell money is created and kind of brought out of thin air into existence. I want to jump into it, but there was one, uh, like metaphor that I thought was really interesting Mm -hmm. is, uh, so I was reading this thing and, um, this guy was saying how like all banks, like the old banks, they look like churches. They're these like epic buildings with these huge pillars, mm-hmm. um, and you know money used to be kept in them. And uh, you know now, I mean, they they look like airport lounges or whatever. But uh, just how like money is like kind of like this faith system. It's really yeah, it's absolutely it's like really like the church of money, you know. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I don't know. Well, I mean, we could draw some interesting parallels between money and religion. They're but, both. Uh, they're, they both require <laughs> a lot of belief and faith. Yeah, and they both re- they both um, are also extremely dependent, at least in some forms of religion, on group dynamics. Mm. You know, but I want to talk about how money is made. Tell me, because it has changed, uh, and I, I did a bunch of research. I was watching all these videos on YouTube and digging through a ton of Wikipedia articles. So I'm going to cover your face up with my notes right now. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing. Uh, In modern economies now, money is backed by nothing. Right. Literally nothing. Uh, It's not how it used to be. People probably have heard of like the gold standard before. Mm. So faith is how it's backed up now. Yeah, just faith. uh, Just the power of governments. Um, 
it, there's this book by David Graeber called Debt, and he has like this weird imperial hypothesis about like kind of being tied to military might and stuff like that, and that might be part of it. But a lot of it is faith. Um, and I kind of want to talk a little bit about how it used to work. So let's just define money quickly. So money is cool. three things. Uh, it's a store of value, so something that can store value. It's a medium of exchange, meaning it's got to be widely accepted in a society. Mm-hmm. And it's a unit of account, which means it has to be divisible. And when you divide it, each part is still equivalent to the other and doesn't lose value. So right. like a diamond is a good store of value because people perceive diamonds to be valuable. But when you hit a diamond with a hammer, each of the resulting pieces is worth less than they would all be put together because like a piece of chipped rock doesn't look nice. So it's bad. It's not evenly divisible. Loses value when you break it. Uh, gold is is much better because you can cut it into little pieces. Each little piece is worth like one tenth of a gold bar. It doesn't lose value by being divided, which is uh, also arbitrarily assigned. Yeah, totally arbitrarily assigned based on what people perceive its value to be, and that's kind of has been tied to scarcity in the past. Um, and just to kind of add, anything, like, yeah. we we used to like trade like a goat for like you to fix my shoes or something. And I, and the whole purpose of money was just to kind of like expedite that process. Did so we? That, huh? Did we? Yeah, yeah, we did. You know it's funny? Huh? I have wanted to do a money history episode with you for a long time about yeah. how that has not ever happened. So every economics textbook will tell you that money evolved to make the barter system more efficient because people were tired of chopping goats into quarters to pay for uh, people to mow their lawn or whatever. And the problem is, and David Graeber's book talks about this, there's no documented case of a barter economy but what about ever cavemen? happening. So what about what cavemen, actually, dude? Like the first people who... What they actually find is that societies were tight-knit and people traded debts. So mm. it's like, you got a bunch of meat, I need some meat, all right, I'll give you some meat. You owe me one, right? And there's just all these interlocking systems of debts. But because people knew each other and because it wasn't quantified with, with money, it was more of just like a, it's, it's not a money thing. It's not like a, I don't it's, know, it's debt is different thing. now with money. It's just like, right. yeah, it's an IOU kind of thing. It's like either I have an obligation to my neighbor. Interesting. Now, so, so we actually, the concept is, has not changed. We've just refined it. Right. But money fundamentally changes that because now you make, you have quantified debt and you've made it transferable. So I can be in debt to you, but then you can trade that debt to somebody else. Now I'm in debt to somebody else. So it's a very different system now than it used to be. It used to be more about like interpersonal connections. And according to his theories and uh, the anthropology research behind that book, money arose out of empire because when you have uh, soldiers and armies going all over the place and trying to trade things with cultures they don't know, or you have cultures like just meeting each other briefly and trading things, then a medium of exchange is more convenient to use because you, those debt bonds don't hold up when you've got an army marching all over the place. Mm. So uh, Crash Course is a really great video about money. And the theory presented there is like a lot of monies were like, okay, the army goes in and loots and plunders a village. Uh, and then that the, the loot and the plunder funds more conquests and more conquests, but eventually the loot runs out. So what do you do? You enslave the local population to mine gold. You create coinage. You pay your soldiers in coins because they would rather spend things they could get now because they know they're going to die soon. 
mm. probably as soldiers rather than just be doing IOU stuff all the time. Hmm. So uh, important thing is that money arose as a way to quantify and make debt more convenient to move around. And money is a claim on human labor, basically. That's what it is fundamentally. And if we didn't use coins, if we didn't use dollar bills, something else would uh, take its place in this more complex economy we have. So so there's a sheep. What's the claim? And I, I buy a sheep for, I don't know, $100, whatever a sheep is worth. Um, right. What's the claim on human labor there? So the sheep provides value, right? Mm. To you in some way. You can, oh, so you're saying you I, have, it, I have done get, I have done labor to, to right, acquire yeah, the sheep. Right, yeah, if I own a sheep, that means I have put in the labor to raise the sheep from birth or whatever. So, you know, and keeping the sheep. So, I mean, money is a claim on human labor, meaning like human labor is kind of integrally uh, connected with items of perceived value, right? Cool, but got it. But in, in a non-money economy, like you go out and you just pick yourself up a sheep off of the cliffs or whatever because <laughs> it doesn't care. <laughs> but when you, when you trade for it, there's like human labor involved. So let's go to America. Mm. Um, money used to be backed by gold. Meaning right. uh, basically like people were trading gold and then eventually banking started where it's like, yo, bro, uh, you don't want your gold to be stolen. So I'll put your gold in my vaults. I'll give you a, a certificate of some sign, some kind saying I owe you 100 gold pieces that you put in my vault and I'll, you'll pay a little bit of interest on that. And then people started trading the IOUs, which is basically paper money. And I think it was the whole thing of just like carrying around like $500 yeah. in gold to go buy. It it's like, yeah, it's not practical. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at uh, dollar bills, I think before 1933 or something like that, I can't remember what the exact year is. Uh, it will say United States Treasury note instead of Federal Reserve note. Hmm. And it will say at the bottom, $1, it'll say uh, redeemable in silver or something to that effect. Interesting. But our money no longer says that. So, so if you still had one of those bills, would it actually still be redeemable? I don't think so because uh, 1933, Roosevelt took all U.S. citizens off the gold supply. So I don't know if paper money was redeemable for gold by private citizens after that date. Mm. So we got to go uh, back a little bit more to figure out why that happened. So basically, um, 1907, there's like, have you ever heard of the Panic of 1907? Uh, a little bit. So basically, um, like the Westinghouse Electric Company failed, the uh, Knickerbocker Trust failed, uh, and just kicked off like runs on the bank. Stock prices were tanking. Everyone was like, hey, I want to get my gold out of the bank. And I was insane. To be and, clear, a run on the bank is when everyone wants their money at once. Yeah, yeah. So to define what a run on the bank is, when you put money into a banking system, we have used a system of banking called fractional reserve banking for over 100 years at this point, where the bank is required to keep a percentage of all its deposits in the vaults, but then it can loan out the uh, rest of it. And that's how banks make money. Mm. Right, I go put a hundred bucks in the bank. The bank has to keep ten dollars in the vaults, and then they can loan out ninety dollars at six percent interest. They make an extra six bucks. Uh, this gets ridiculous, but that's like the I was going to say. Let's get into that simple later because that yeah, gets really that gets, that's the bare bones simple concept of it. And when you figure out how money creation works, you're like, how is this possible? Like, why, why is this allowed? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of people put their hundred dollars in the bank. So ten people each put a hundred dollars in the bank. 
Uh, the bank has a thousand. They have to keep ten percent, so they've got a uh, hundred total. Now it's unlikely that all ten need to come go get, uh, need to go get their hundred dollars at once. Except so, when there's like a lot of fear, right? When there's the fear, bank. when something's going on, and this goes into the faith-based setup where it's right, like yeah, if everyone's all, happy, the banks have money, money gets created. But when they're fearful, yeah, it's, exactly. The moment, like two thousand, the moment the books say more exists than actually exists in gold or whatever unit of exchange you have. It's all based on faith. Mm. So when that faith runs out, when something bad happens, everyone panics. They want their money out of the bank so they can hold it. And uh-oh, the bank doesn't have that money because they have loaned out uh, 900 of that $1,000, even though they say they have that $1,000 on the books. So they actually have can't. much, much less than that. But. Yes, and we'll get into that. Yeah. So the, the, Fed, the reserve rate is 10%, but you'll see how that is completely... Uh, not ignored, but gamed to the point of it being ignored, essentially. All right, so that happened in 1907, and uh, J.P. Morgan actually came in as like the lender of last resort, meaning like, oh, everything is screwed. J.P. Morgan basically saves everyone, and he intervened. He like uh, got all the bankers to sit around in his living room over like three weeks, and they figured out how to move money from the strong banks to save the weak banks, and basically, J.P. Morgan saved America. I mean, he, probably, he figured out how to do it. So he that, probably screwed America up somewhere yeah, along the way. I was going to say, he figured out how to do it so he could get rich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's why there's J.P. The Morgan. Savior, but I'm also the oppressor kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but the government was like, shit, we don't want this to happen again. So mm. 1913 rolls around. We get something called the Owen Glass Federal Reserve Act, which creates... The Federal Reserve. Probably, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Federal Reserve is not a government-owned entity. And I think right? this is where like a lot of the confusion comes from. Yeah. Because the head of the Federal Reserve gets like appointed by the president. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, they're printing our government's money. So how mm-hmm. does it work? How is it so, part of slash not part of? The Federal Reserve is a banking cartel that is uh, the stock of which is held by its member banks. Cartel so means all- a good thing, right? A car- yeah, a cartel is just a big group. So, I mean, this is not like the Mexican drug cartel. You can, you can, you, people on their sides of their politics are going to say good, bad. You know, there are a lot of people probably think the Fed is worse than Mexican cartels. A lot of people are just <laughs> like, whatever, it's banking. Uh, but yes, it is held by private banks, but it is federally sponsored, meaning the president so, appoints okay, so again, the what, head. Specifically, and it has like, a charter to lend money into existence from to, the federal government. Specifically, a, a, a cartel is, is what, again? Like, What's the, right. the definition? Uh, only because like OPEC's a cartel <laughs> and, you know. A cartel is an association of manufacturers or suppliers with the purpose of maintaining prices at a high level and restricting competition. Wow, that sounds bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's what banks do, right? Yeah. Banks have like overnight lending rates. They communicate. They, you know, do all this stuff. So banks are, the big banks at least are trying to kind of keep everything so the idea is they have the federal reserve it controls uh the money supply and then we could do strategic things like raise interest rates everywhere and make inflation go up or down and right mm. yes okay so at this point the we still have the gold standard dollars are backed by gold and i believe around now the that's like 21 dollars per ounce of gold or something like that Mm. so 19 uh 33 Roosevelt takes the U.S. citizens off the gold supply. The Federal Reserve seizes all the gold um, that it can get from the banks and exchanges it for $11 billion in currency that it prints. 
So now the Federal Reserve owns all the gold. The gold standard is controlled by the Fed. And uh, in 1944, all these bankers get together at something called the Bretton Woods Conference. And they establish the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. So, yay, America's on top. <laughs> and they set the gold exchange at $35 an ounce. Also, at this point, you have the International Monetary Fund, which you might have heard of, is created. It's like a global bank. It's like a bank yeah. for... Big-ass bank. Yeah. All over the place. So, if we're keeping tally here, 1944, Fed's got all the gold. They put all this money in the economy. Uh, gold is worth $35 an ounce. And but it's still all, backed by gold to some degree. Yeah, yeah, $35 an ounce. Mm-hmm. Like So, you could go get one ounce of gold for 35 bucks at this point. And then all other global currencies that are kind of in this uh, IMF kind of deal, like modern economies, their reserve currency is the dollar. So, cool. Like, sounds people good. People just like trading shells or something don't count. But. <laughs> Dude, it, it sounds good. It sounds Branch, like they whatever. figured it out. Like it's backed by something. Right. Uh, okay. you know, it's so like here's, fixed by the amount of gold we have. So like we're good. We're done. Here comes the funny business because now we get into wars and then mm. the government starts changing the rules and they start increasing the dollars to gold ounce ratio uh, it just keeps going up and up and up. So no longer will $35 buy you an ounce of gold. Like and then $55. in 1971, mm. President Nixon just is like, uh, no more gold backing. They call it slamming the gold window. So 1971, all global money becomes unbacked so, by anything physical. It is all fiat currency at this point. This means that... Um, the government has all the money that's worth something, and then they just sell the gold, I guess, for their own to, to make more money. I don't money. even know what they do with the gold. Well, they don't, have to, yeah. they don't have to give it to us anymore, so they definitely... Yep. Yeah. So now the dollar and all those currencies that use the dollar as their reserve currency are no longer backed by gold. They're just backed by whatever the government says they're worth. Well, and see here, I think this is the thing, is that they're backed by what we all collectively like believe they're worth. So the thing mm. is, like when you go to the corner store and buy gum for a dollar, the guy isn't checking with the government to see what it's worth. The guy at the corner store is determined based on what he costs him to get the gum and the profit he wants to make that it's worth a dollar. And so it becomes this thing like detached. It's like a very faith-based thing. Yeah. As long as and, uh, we all like agree that gum is a dollar, then we're good. Yeah, a little more complicated than that, but that that's the that's the the uh the premise at least. Oh, also I, I forgot to mention back when dollars were redeemable, I think they were redeemable for silver. Mm. Um I'm not sure if they were redeemable for straight up gold or maybe there was some well, dude, I tell, didn't read it too much. Tell me the that. more complicated part. Okay. So let's talk about fractional reserve banking. Money is created in two ways. One through that fractional reserve system where I put a hundred dollars into the bank and the bank says Cool. Um, and actually, I, I linked to something that I can show you. Um, there's like this cool tool that I want to link up in the show notes that will show you exactly how this works. The simple fractional reserve banking model. Hmm. So like we said earlier, you put 100 bucks into the bank. The bank is required to reserve a part of that. Um, right now, the reserve ratio is 10%. And then they will pay you an interest rate to keep your money at the bank. And I don't know what, what, what does your bank give you? Like 1% maybe? I, that's so low. I, I have no idea. For, yeah, for the interest of simplicity, let's 1%. set that your, your interest rate is 1%. And then they can loan out everything on top of that, uh, that reserve ratio. So but I think it's to called be clear, reserve. real quick, 
um, the banks can loan this money out, but the banks have to first get the money from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And the Federal so, Reserve gives them the money for like half of a percent, like basically a fractional percent, it virtually yeah, for free. That's I forget what the the term is for that um, that percentage. And and the Federal Reserve. So is it the, the federal funds rate, maybe. Yeah, yeah, the the Fed fund rate. And yes. um, the the whole point is that the government's like, okay, we want to lend people money and you know get the juice flowing in the economy, so they give money to the banks really cheaply under the assumption or rather the hope that the banks will then lend it to us to buy a house, to buy a car, to buy a TV yeah. or, or sheep. Right. So that's how you expand the economy. So, right. all right, let's just, let's explain how the Fed does this. Well, because I definitely want to get into the, like, the where, fractional piece. Where does the Fed get this money that it gives to people? And the answer is very simple. They create a bookkeeping entry mm. where it says, we have loaned $10 billion to Bank X. So now Bank X has, uh, they are in debt $10 million. And the Fed basically has an asset now of $10 million bond that they've given to the bank. Or not a bond, but like that's kind of how it works. Mm. Poof. $10 million has been created. Well, I, I think they literally just create. I don't think they, yeah, but. It's just, it's just created as a bookkeeping entry. And in fact, most money is not even printed anymore. Only 3% of the currency circulating in the U.S. is paper well, or, or coins. The rest of it is just bookkeeping entries, digits so on a computer. I was going to say, if we like compare the two, so I was checking in the, in the Fed on their site, on their website, they have it. So the dollars in the world right now are about mm. $1.2 So they're about $1.2 trillion in the world. However, the total money, the whole, the total, and they call it like M1 and M2, yeah. Based on this classification, so the total of everything that's out there is actually fourteen point one trillion dollars. So if you yeah. were to gather all the crazy. coins and bills, it's only one point two, but we're spending every day fourteen point one. So that, that kind of gives you the idea of how much it balloons from. Right. So here is uh, the kicker to this: when this money is created there's interest that has to be paid on it. Mm-hmm. It's loaned out of thin air to the banks. They have to pay interest on it. So all money is debt mm-hmm. immediately. And all money is debt with interest, which means we have to keep creating money that can satisfy the interest of the previous money, which means the money supply must always expand as a integral part of our banking system. And this is inflation. So that's inflation. So if you ever wondered, like, why the hell does money and why does it inflate? Why does it keep getting worth less? It's because of this system. So you create money that's immediately debt, and then there must more must uh, more must be created to satisfy that debt. So okay, so so if we back up, um, you know, you put a hundred dollars in the bank, mm-hmm. right, and they retain ten percent, or the or the Fed gives the bank money either right. way. And, and so 10% is the holding rate. And it, and it seemed like it was mm-hmm. actually closer to 3% when you distill it all out when I was, I was reading this thing. But I think it's it's 10, it's 10, but that's per account. So it so I, the, way, the way I think it works is it's percentage based on how much you have deposited. And you have, if you have a huge account, it's 10%. But for most things, it's like closer to 3. But either oh, okay. way, let's let's go with 10 because it's a easy number to kind of work with. Yeah, so okay. if you have... 
$100 in a bank, mm-hmm. that means that uh, it creates $10,000, like, total. Like, I, don't think, I don't think it's 10000 to 100 I think well, the video no, no, I'm sorry. says it's you can create 1, about... It said, like, for every billion injected into the economy, uh, the fractional reserve system can create $9 billion. So, ah, sorry. No, no. It, I, I, was a, I was a zero off. So $100 becomes $1,000. Yes. So that, let's explain yeah, yeah. how that happens. Mm. All right. So you deposit $100 into the bank. They, they have to keep 10 on reserve. And let's just say, for sake of simplicity, they will pay you $1 or a 1% interest, and then they'll loan that out at 6% interest. Mm-hmm. So I go buy my house, and they, and they loan it to me. Right. Okay. So you make that first deposit. There's $100 in that deposit. Now you get $1. Now they can loan out $90 of that initial $100 deposit, and they're going to get $5.40 of interest on that. So what happened is so they loaned me the $90 to, to buy my house, and uh, I take that money, and I, because I bought the house, I give that loaned money to the guy I'm buying the house from. Right. So now yeah. he has ninety dollars. Well, let's 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 uh, make it even simpler and mm-hmm. not even say you're buying a house. Let's just say like they loan the money out to somebody else. Okay. So now somebody else has ninety bucks. Now they can deposit that into another bank account. Could be at the same bank. Could be at a different one. But now the cycle starts all over again. So they at this point, they have to reserve ten percent of that, meaning they have to reserve nine dollars. Wait. So wait. Wait. So real quick. Out. Dude, so the person one had $100, right? And the bank right. loaned it out. And, and that $100 is his sitting in the bank that he could withdraw at any moment. Yep. And now a second guy has $90 that he yep. that is his that which he could withdraw at any moment. In thin air which is just as valuable as the first $100. Yep, because the $100 is still in the books. The guy could technically go take out his $100 if he wanted to. But 90 of that dollars have been, li- have been loaned out. Mm-hmm. Now the second guy... He can deposit that $90 in another bank account. Like I said, could be at the same bank, could be at a different one. But now the reserve rate starts all over again. So now the bank has to keep nine of that in reserve. And they can loan out 81. So now they've made $4.86 interest in on that. They have to pay 90 cents interest out to the holder. And the cycle starts anew until you're basically left with nothing left. And uh, we'll link to this tool in the show notes. Um, You get a total of 68 deposits using the initial $100, and that creates a total of $999.23. That's how money's created. Also created through, so it's created in two ways. It's created that way, and then it's also created when the Fed uh, creates money by lending to banks out of thin air. Hmm. So that's how it works. Fed, money created out of thin air, exchange for government debt, like bonds and notes, basically. We loan it to the government, the government puts it into circulation or the local bank level where it's loaned into existence by the fractional system and the debt pays interest. So it must always expand. So yeah, I, I wrote in here at a minimum each year, enough new money must be loaned into existence to cover the interest payments on the previous years. Each and every year, it must grow by some percentage by design. It's exponential and the amount of debt will always exceed the amount of money. So perpetual expansion is a fundamental requirement of modern banking. And here's the cool thing. Hmm. All right, not the cool thing. Here's the crazy thing. From colonial times up until, I think, 1973, that is how long it took for the first trillion dollars to be created. Hmm. And then the video I was watching was put out in 2008. In 2008, 
we created the next trillion dollars in four and a half months. Wow. And so, I don't mean like from one to two trillion. I mean, it was like from like 13 to 14 trillion or something like that. But yeah, every four and a half months. So what happens when we're creating a trillion dollars in even less time? Because things are this, inflating this, quicker. Right. And the pace of income does not, it, income doesn't keep pace, right? Mm. People aren't being paid more. It's not like it's just equivalent zero is being added to every single balance and everything stays in equilibrium. Prices go up and the incomes don't go up as fast. And that's why inflation eats away people's savings. And one of the things that it uh, made clear in some of the research I was doing is like we have a system that hurts people who save their money. And and the reason it, it hurts almost, people who save their money is because the dollar will be worth less in right. their account in the future because of inflation. Yeah, because the way we create money means every new dollar steals some of the value from the existing dollars, but you're not getting any exist you're not getting any more dollars into your bank account because the way the dollars are created is through loans. So when you save money, you're just letting it be eaten away by the creation of new money. Well, That's so the why thing is, when you to, save money and keep it in a bank account or you know, like a savings or checking account, because you're not earning enough interest to outpace inflation. Yeah, which is why over the long term, like your cash is actually your riskiest investment because yeah, you're exactly. losing value consistently. So we have a system where citizens have to subject their money to risk. Otherwise, it loses value. So check this out. I actually want to invest. I want to talk on like speculate. You know, I want to talk on the risk piece a little bit. So first, I just want to kind of explain the M1, M2, and this is from uh, if you just search M1 versus M2 in Google, it says uh, a measure of money supply that includes cash and checking deposits, M1, as well as near money. And so near money. And in M2 includes savings deposits, money market mutual funds, and other time deposits, which are less liquid and is subject to exchange mediums, but we could convert into cash or checking deposits. So what that means is like M2 is your house, right? Or mm. your, your stock investments where they're, they have a value, but they're not a dollar. It's like um, an estimated value, right? Because the value of your house can go up, it can go down. And so what happens is as we move further away from actual dollars into this M2 territory of like assets, the assets can change in value. And so in 2008, when everyone got fearful and prices dropped, all of the assets covering the loans decreased in value and loans weren't able to be met. Yeah. And so that's like the the inflexible part of um, the money thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and then this this also ties in with, if you look at trends of um, work, like, what is it? Like efficiency of work being done in companies everywhere because of automation technology and all that, uh, and wages increasing. You see, like, from the 50s to, like, the 70s, they're kind of keeping pace. And then after the 70s, Wages kind of stagnate, where but the productivity and efficiency keeps going up. The profits keep going up, so people are they are doing things more efficiently. We're creating more value, but we're not being compensated for it. And all the while, the money system is continually creating more money and well, inflating the currency and making what you you know making your stagnant wages worth less. It was so, also it was also around uh, Nixon's time. Or and, and Reagan's time, even that uh, like 
we were able to start buying things on debt. So now, like, the GDP and the economy is, like, driven now by consumer spending. So mm-hmm. before, when you made $100, you're only able to spend $100. But now when you make $100, you could spend a multiple of $100. So yeah. what happened is, like, wages are – the economy keeps growing because we're spending money that we don't have. and. Yep. And now my brain hurts. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope this explains money creation at least sort of well. We can link to some of the videos and Wikipedia articles that I looked through. Also, if you really want to get nerdy, the Federal Reserve itself put out this booklet called uh, Modern Money Mechanics. And it's like, how many pages is it? Uh, Doesn't tell. There's no page numbers. It's probably like 40 pages 50 pages maybe i'll say that and like explains money creation in detail so we'll link that up as well if you look at it it looks as exciting as it sounds (laughs) in that it's like a wall of text and a few monochrome graphs there's not even any spaces between the subheadings and the next text just literally no line breaks whatsoever it's literally a wall of text like not double spaced (laughs) yeah but if you want to understand this as well as you're probably going to be able to, uh, you can read that. Otherwise, some of like the videos on money creation, um, there's like this series on YouTube called The Crash Course, which is not to be confused with Crash Course that I typically watch. So it's called The Crash Course. It's called The Crash Course. It's Ooh. older than Crash Course. So oh, really? Like fault him. Yeah, it was like, and it, The Crash Course is made by this guy. who's like Chris Martinson, I think, and uh it's just about like economics and, hmm. and money creation and inflation, whereas the channel crash course is about literature and science and biology and history and everything. So uh, we can link all that stuff up in the show notes if you're more curious. And then from here, I think the next thing I want to do is um, an episode on national debt. Can't say when it'll come out because these kind of episodes require a lot of research, but uh, mm. we'll follow that up with more on the debt. And then, yeah. Cool. Boom. Boom. So, yeah. Hopefully your brain is bigger now. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it is hurting. Cool. All right, Andrew. Well, uh, that's about it for this episode, right? Yep. Cool. Guys, if you have questions, listenmoneymatters at gmail.com is where you can email us or you can join our lovely community full of mer- uh, money nerds and discuss this episode. You can go to listenmoneymatters.com slash join. If you want to join, get lots of cool bonuses, extra podcasts, downloads, cool stuff as well. And, uh, yeah, so check it out. Also, if you want to find our favorite books, tools, money resources, apps, and uh, other stuff, listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox is where you can find that stuff. So Mm. go check it out. Andrew's been coding up this cool library page, and I'm pretty jealous. True that, slash books. uh, Yeah, oh, yeah, that's what it is. It's still, like, in super early phases. It requires much more code still, but. (laughs) Well, it's looking pretty good. All right, dude. Until next week, see you, dude. Later, man. Please tell your friends about this show.